Episode 10 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 2.4, General Discussion Points. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will discuss a variety of points that are really important for providing context for the discussions that follow as a sort of intellectual housekeeping. We have several details that I haven't discussed yet or only discussed in a cursory manner that need a bit more emphasis before we dive into the more detailed battles, campaigns, and wars later on in the large plates of Nephi. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Naming Conventions of People and Battles Now, let us begin with a comment or two on naming conventions that I use for people and battles. Those of you who have been listening to earlier episodes have heard me say things like Alma 1 or Alma 2 or the Battle of Manti. I want to briefly explain why I do so. First, I will begin with people. There are several people named Nephi, Lehi, Alma, Moroni, etc. I have labeled each one based on when he, and yes, all duplicates are men, appears in the record. The first person is Nephi 1, for example, and then later ones are called Nephi 4 or Nephi 6. Both of these specific men figure significantly in the record and each gets a designation based on the genealogical record of Book of Mormon personalities, as we have it, so that we can keep each one separated from others of the same name. I may sometimes slip up and refer to the first person by a name solely as the name. I will intentionally refer to the man, sometimes called Captain Moroni, as simply Moroni, and then refer to Moroni, who is Mormon's son, as Moroni too. I have one more purposeful exception, Mormon. His father was also named Mormon, but he is not really a character in this story at all. For that reason, I refer to Mormon, the record keeper, who should be called Mormon too, using my naming convention, but I simply call him Mormon. Second, let's talk about battles. For the most part, I label battles based off location where they occurred, and I delineate the occurrence by ordinals like the First Battle of Manti or the Fourth Battle of Manti. There are exceptions. For example, I call the major fight the Tremendous Battle of the Wilderness, because Mormon says, and I quote from Alma chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the armies of the Lamanites had followed their brethren into the wilderness, and thus there was a tremendous battle. Close quote. The name is vague because the location given is vague. Another exception is the fighting that takes place in 3 Nephi between the Nephites and Lamanites and the Gadianton robbers. This happens once the Nephites and Lamanites have consolidated into a single or two settlements. I call this the battle of the consolidated settlement. By design, these are not inventive names, and each name is intended to convey location and possibly repetition. Another exception is the battle of the stripling warriors, which we discuss in another episode. The ordinals used 
include implied battles as well as purposefully identified battles. I do this so that a listener will understand how many battles may have involved the city of Zarahemla, for example. We will not reference every battle in detail, but we will refer to all battles that are given detail in the record and those immediately adjacent or contextually important to them. Topic 2. Cities and Lands The peoples of America built cities, and Mormon records that the foundation of cities was essential to the Nephite culture in particular. As cities become both a focal point for and a source of wealth, they naturally become a target for enemy attack. It goes back to the concept of going to where the money is. When asked why he robbed banks, a famous thief answered, that's where the money is. Humans fight in and around cities because that's where the people are. Cities are also where the wealth, communications, infrastructure, governments, religious seats, and national symbols are. The Book of Mormon is full of battles that occur in the open field, but most of the battles occur nearby or within the Nephite cities. As future battles are analyzed, various siege techniques are also discussed. Nephites built cities and they fortified them. Certainly from the time of the Xenophites rejoining the Nephites and onward, this was a common practice. Moroni institutionalized defensive preparations and made it a regular and required effort. Despite the emphasis on fortification, we are never told about siege engines of any type. The soldiers assault cities, climb over walls, fight through openings, but we do not hear of breaching the wall, sapping, tunneling, battering, or any of several other techniques used by the Near Eastern armies previously discussed in our series. The Book of Mormon talks of cities and lands. What do these terms mean? If you are familiar with the meaning of a Greek polis, then the naming of locations in the Book of Mormon should be easy. A Greek polis consisted of two parts, the city itself and the farmlands that supported the city. All of this was referred to by the name of the city. In this sense, ancient Athens, Sparta, or Corinth were always more than what existed within the walls of the city. Similarly, the Book of Mormon uses the terms city of and land of, for example, the land of Jershon or city of Jershon. The city is the city proper, and the land of is the land that supports the city. Sometimes the land of can be rather massive. For example, the land of Jershon initially seems to cover quite a large area until additional Nephite cities are built in Alma chapter 50, and then the lands associated with each of those cities tends to shrink the size of the land of Jershon. Another example is the land of Zarahemla, which is a rather vague term. In one sense, it meets the definition just given in that it is a combination of the actual city and the supporting lands. It also seems to reference everything south of the land bountiful. Finally, it can sometimes reference all of the Nephite lands collectively. In this way, Zarahemla denotes both a specific land, a general land, and a collective land. 
I try to hold to the terms used in the Book of Mormon record. However, I may slip up and interchange land of for city of or vice versa. Just keep in mind that there is a difference between city and land. Topic 3. Geography and Separation Barriers Keeping with the geography theme, terrain has always served to be a facilitator of or a protection against conflict. From the beginning of the Book of Mormon record, terrain is used to limit or deter conflict. Lehi flees into the wilderness to avoid the threats on his life, to place terrain between him and his potential assailants. Nephi flees from the land of first inheritance to create separation and provide protection from his brothers. Mosiah 1 flees from the land of Nephi to separate himself from the attacking Lamanites. Mormon's descriptions of the geography of the lands through which the stories unfold are replete with separation barriers, wilderness, river, mountains, narrow neck of land. Despite these separations, the conflict continues. This is similar in moral lesson to the you-can-run-but-you-can't-hide lesson that comes from the story of Jonah and the whale, and it addresses the challenges of the conflict between good and evil. This is not a fight from which any of us can run. The locations and physical geography presented throughout this podcast is a figurative one used to communicate the general relationships of opposing forces in the conflicts discussed. No geographic location is given to denote a specific place in current geography, with the exception of the Hill Cumorah where Moroni buried the plates. The important notion is the fact that there are four major terrain divisions discussed for the Land of Promise in order from south to north, the land of first inheritance, the land of Nephi, later the land of Lehi-Nephi, the land of Zarahemla, or land southward, and the land northward. The Lamanites continue to expand from the south to the north throughout the narrative, and the Nephites find themselves constantly struggling to maintain control of their lands. Land control is a fundamental shaping aspect of the battles discussed. In later episodes, we will address general Nephite and Lamanite strategies as they relate to the control of or the ability to influence land. Topic 4. Weapons and Armor Our next main topic is important to both the poetry and to gaining lessons from war in the Book of Mormon. I specifically mean the purposes of weapons. Just as each of the various arms, like infantry, cavalry, or artillery, have a purpose on the battlefield, each type of weapon also served a purpose. This is important, especially when thinking about the use of the terms swords and scimitars that appear often in the Book of Mormon. A scimitar is simply a common spelling of Joseph Smith's day of our contemporary word scimitar, which meant, according to the Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language, and I quote, a short sword with a convex edge or recurvated point used by the Persians and Turks. Original note, the word is variously written, but it is a word of foreign origin, and it is not material which orthography is used, provided it is uniform. I have adopted that which is most simple. 
close quote. We are told more than once that bodies of fighters carried swords and scimitars. This leads to the question, why carry or fight with a sword and another type of sword? It seems redundant. Hopefully, after this brief explanation of the purpose of each weapon, we can appreciate that each of these items had a unique role. The discussion begins with missile weapons and then concludes with melee weapons. The bow and arrow is a common instrument of war. It is the combination of a projectile, arrow, and the projector, bow. In this case, the projectile was designed to penetrate human flesh and later armor as well. The projector, or bow, can be made of a variety of materials. And in the Book of Mormon record, we have both wood and steel bows mentioned. There are no details after the story in 1 Nephi about the broken bow, which we get in 1 Nephi chapter 16, verse 18, in terms of materials. So speculation is difficult as to construction for the bows in the Book of Mormon. The sling and stone were also common and were a projector and projectile, respectively. The story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 38 to 54 is a great example of the utility of such a weapon. We have a specific reference to the use of a sling in single combat with Ammon II fighting at the waters of Sebus from Alma chapter 17 verses 27 to 39. The purpose of the sling and stone is to bludgeon. This is not a weapon of penetration, but a blunt force weapon. This makes it no less lethal, and it should not be discounted. There are ancient accounts of slingers wounding and killing opponents at ranges in excess of 200 yards or 200 meters. The javelin is also a missile weapon and one of great effectiveness. Like the arrow, it is designed to pierce the opponent or his armor. Each missile weapon also tended to function at different ranges. In the Near East, the javelin was short range. The sling and bow may have been both medium and long range depending on materials and training. Five different melee weapons are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Spear, sword, scimitar, club, and axe. The spear was the common weapon of armies in the ancient Near East and the larger Mediterranean world as well. In the Book of Mormon, it does not seem to enjoy such a position of prominence. The reason for this may be the fact that Nephi 1 patterned his weapons from the sword of Laban, and not a spear. It may also have been an issue of fighting battles in more restricted space. The wilderness of the Western Hemisphere tended to be wooded rather than the open plains and desert in, as in the Near East. Or it may just be an editorial or poetic omission. I suppose that it is a combination of the first two reasons at least, and in a smaller sense, a combination of all. The spear is a thrusting weapon designed to penetrate. Typically, it is used straightforward, and therefore spear-wielding infantry can be immediately adjacent to each other, as we see in hoplite phalanxes in Greek history. The sword can come in a variety of shapes and sizes. For the purposes of this, the sword referred to was probably a relatively straight weapon that had a thrusting and stabbing purpose. The material of the weapon is irrelevant. The purpose is what makes one weapon a sword and another weapon a scimitar. The scimitar, 
Remember, its modern name is scimitar, was anciently a curved weapon designed to slash at the opponent. Mounted warriors typically preferred such weapons. In the Book of Mormon, the emphasis on this type of weapon meant that both the Nephites and Lamanites had slashing weapons, even though there is no reference to mounted combat. The shape and the material of the weapon is not important. It is the purpose that gives the weapon its name. A club is designed to bludgeon. It is one of the oldest and simplest of weapons in all of human history, as any long object could be a club. This weapon is not common in the Book of Mormon record. The last weapon is an axe. This is a weapon that was designed to penetrate in a chopping motion. It is important not to simply think of axe as the tool used to cut down trees. In the Near East, and especially in the Egyptian armies, the axe was an important implement with a specific purpose of penetrating enemy armor, specifically the helmet. The weapon end was more pointed so that it could punch a hole through the helmet. It is possible that this weapon could be similar to the axes of other forces, which did resemble, to a degree, woodcutting axes. Once again, as there are no descriptions of the weapon in the Book of Mormon other than a name, it should be viewed entirely on purpose, penetration through a chopping motion. Each weapon had a purpose, and some people carried multiple weapons. One can surmise from this that this allowed that person to achieve multiple purposes. This is one of the most profound, subtle points in the military portions of the Book of Mormon. Mormon is emphasizing, on multiple occasions, the importance of having several ways to approach the opponent. It is better to have weapons of every kind than weapons of a single kind. The Lord does not ask for single skill proficiency. Rather, He wants us to be able to use a variety of skills to accomplish our purpose. The sons of Mosiah took multiple weapons with them on a missionary journey, as we are told in Alma chapter 17, verse 7, and I quote, Nevertheless, they departed out of the land of Zarahemla, and took their swords, and their spears, and their bows, and their arrows, and their slings, and this they did, that they might provide food for themselves while in the wilderness. Close quote. These men, who poetically serve as exemplars of proper and complete servants of God, had different weapons that thrust at different lengths, that cut, and that bludgeon and pierce at range. They could engage a target from range or deal with it close up and accomplish a variety of purposes. This, I think, is the point of these details, to inform us today that we need to develop weapons of every kind so that we can deal with whatever problems we, or those to whom we minister, have with more than a single technique. It isn't sufficient to advise someone to pray their problems away. Prayer is a useful and important tool and weapon against the adversary, but it shouldn't be the only weapon we carry. We can add to prayer fasting, scripture study, service to others, invitations to worship, family history. All of these activities could be considered a weapon in our daily struggles. Each is also indicative of a different skill with a different benefit on the spiritual and daily battlefield.
The weapons of every kind comment used in the Book of Mormon is another way to express the whole armor of God concept. Each piece of the armor represents a different trait or characteristic of a proper Christian soldier. Topic 5. Demographic Differences Between Nephites and Lamanites One thing becomes clear in the narrative of armed conflict. The Nephite culture was almost always outnumbered in their battles, campaigns, and wars. How can this be? The separation between Nephi and Laman was not an equal one, certainly, but yet it was close enough that one would not have predicted such a significant demographic disparity. To begin with, here is a short explanation of the facts of the case. Nephi tells us in 2 Nephi chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, and I quote, Wherefore it came to pass that I, Nephi, did take my family, and also Zoram, and his family, and Sam, mine elder brother, and his family, and Jacob, and Joseph, my younger brethren, and also my sisters, and all those who would go with me. And all those who would go with me were those who believed in the warnings and the revelations of God, wherefore they did hearken unto my words. And we did take our tents, and whatsoever things were possible for us, and did journey in the wilderness for the space of many days. And after we had journeyed for the space of many days, we did pitch our tents. Close quote. We are told earlier that Lehi had six sons, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, Nephi, Jacob, and Joseph, and possibly daughters, though they are only referred to in the above-quoted reference, and this could allude to sisters-in-law as well as, or in the place of, daughters born to Lehi and Sariah. Ishmael had two sons and five daughters. The two sons of Ishmael were already with families. Zoram was an additional companion. Out of this group of 16 adults, or near adults, at the time of the departure from Jerusalem, we know that by the time of the aforementioned separation, that at least the two patriarchs had died. Ishmael, in the land of Nahum, in 1 Nephi chapter 16, verse 34, and Lehi, in the promised land, in 2 Nephi chapter 4, verse 12. That leaves as many as 14 adults from these two families. I'm not counting either Jacob or Joseph in this, as I do not think they had reached their majority. Of these 14, Nephi tells the reader that six went with him. He also says, and all those who would go with me, which implies more than the six specifically mentioned. This is a fairly even split. Three adult pairs become the Nephites, and four adult pairs become the Lamanites. In less than 200 years, Jerem describes the Lamanites as exceedingly more numerous in Jerem chapter 1, verse 6. This description does not come after the well-known dissensions and destructive wars described later on in the record. Between the separation and Jerem, the people have been relatively stable in terms of departures of large groups, and the conflict has been mostly successful for the Nephites, as seems to be expressed in 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 34, Jacob chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, and Jerem chapter 1, verse 7. This trend mentioned by Jerem becomes common throughout the remainder of the Book of Mormon. 
Of course, by the conflicts in the Book of Alma, it is easy to explain much of the demographic difference by dissensions, though even then the Nephites had combined with the Mulekites and formed a combined tribal confederation slash kingdom. We are told in Mosiah chapter 25 verses 2 and 3 at the time of the formal uniting of the two groups at about 120 BC, and I quote, Now there were not so many of the children of Nephi, or so many of those who were descendants of Nephi, as there were of the people of Zarahemla, who was a descendant of Mulek, and those who came with him into the wilderness. And there were not so many of the people of Nephi, and of the people of Zarahemla, as there were of the Lamanites. Yea, they were not half so numerous. Close quote. At this point, more than four centuries after the division, there have been large battles with significant casualties as expressed in Omni chapter 1 verse 24 and Words of Mormon chapter 1 verse 12. Zenith had led away a large number of people to form a Nephite colony within the Lamanite-controlled areas, and their remaining descendants had returned. Three separate dissensions had occurred, at one point, the more wicked part of the Nephites had been killed, and the Mulekites had experienced their own wars and contentions. Much occurred in the pages of Omni and Mosiah to cause a significant reduction in those people who would call themselves Nephites. But in Jerem, these events were still in the distant future. How did this demographic shift occur within the first five to ten generations? There are several possibilities, and virtually all of them are speculative in nature. They are presented here in brief as food for thought when considering this early demographic lack of equilibrium. First, greater birth rate. The simplest explanation is that the Lamanite families maintained a higher birth rate throughout the early history and simply out-procreated the Nephite families. Second, servants. It is not impossible to think that the households of Lehi and Ishmael had servants. The fact that they are not mentioned in the scriptural record does not exclude the possibility that they accompanied the families. There are numerous details excluded from the record, as they did not meet the criteria of sacred importance laid out in 1 Nephi chapter 19, verse 6. Some of these servants could have been those Nephi refers to as all those who would go with me. Since the sons of Ishmael had established families prior to their departure, they may have had their own servants, and the fact that Laman was the oldest son and the accepted birthright holder, it is plausible that most of the servants from Lehi's household would have remained and become Lamanites. Number three, plural marriage. It has been suggested by Lynn and Joy Hilton in their work called Discovering Lehi that maybe Laman, Lemuel, and the sons of Ishmael engaged in plural marriage with either the Arab tribes along their path to the land bountiful or with those they met in the promised land. Plural marriage seems not to exist among the Lamanite people by the time Jacob gives his sermon to the Nephites on morality in Jacob chapter 3 verse 5, as he specifically states as much. So this possible reason might be a bigger stretch than others. That said, one might argue that the fact the Lamanites had a rule about only having one wife, 
no concubines and no whoredoms might be because those practices were common enough to make these rules necessary. Regardless, we're done with this theory. Our next idea deals with this concept of Ishmaelitish or Lamanitish. I love the suffix ish, and I use it quite a bit in my teaching. I know how I use it. It means close to, but not quite. What does it mean in the Book of Mormon? Let me quote from Alma chapter 3, verse 7. And their brethren sought to destroy them, therefore they were cursed. And the Lord God set a mark upon them, yea, upon Laman and Lemuel, and also the sons of Ishmael, and Ishmaelitish women. Close quote. It is unclear who the Ishmaelitish women were, but it is clear that they are marked as separate from those who traveled from Jerusalem. It is likely that Alma would have referred to daughters of Ishmael, using that phrase rather than the previous and less specific term referenced above. This is the most speculative of this group of possible theories, but it would give room for a larger population base among the Lamanites. The term Ishmaelitish appears only this once. The term Lamanitish appears twice in reference to women and servants in the land of Ishmael, under the rulership of King Lamoni, and in conjunction with the story of the missionary Ammon II. My point is that this refers to people who may be culturally connected to the Ishmaelites or the Lamanites, but were not themselves descended from Ishmael or Laman. Finally, native allies. It is certain that there were others, in addition to the Mulekites, living in the general area of the land of first inheritance, with whom the descendants of Lehi would have come in contact. In this possibility, the Lamanites, at some point prior to Jerome's comments, ally with these native groups, or vice versa, and the combined group becomes known as Lamanites within the Nephite record. This might be those people who were referred to as the Ish groups mentioned previously. It is possible that one or more of these suggestions could have been accurate. Whatever the reason, the Nephites retained a disadvantage in people from at least the recordings of Jerem until the final battle at Cumorah. Why does this matter for this topic at hand? I will give three reasons. One, we are told in both the Nephite and Jaredite records that the people spread over the face of the land and that shortly after these declarations, there was war. This follows a common theory for cause of conflict. The demographic pressure is correlated to it. Two, for practical reasons. If one society is outnumbered by another and they are in conflict, then the society experiencing greater pressure will adapt more in order to survive. 3. There is a poetic component that is supportive of the overall metaphor Mormon provides. I think Mormon wants to express that each one of us is outnumbered on our personal battlefields of life, that we will go into battle, so to speak, at a numerical disadvantage. Because of this metaphorical reality, Mormon encourages us to be innovative in how we fashion armor, that we employ weapons of every kind, and that we seek to surround our opponents. Additionally, the protagonists in the Book of Mormon story are always outnumbered, and yet they are successful when they prepare well, enter into an honor covenants, 
and are unified with God individually through the Holy Ghost and collectively through loving service. This isn't about physical conflict after all, but it is about the spiritual battles of our life. Topic 6. Competition of Cultures The use of the term culture has become common among the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The term has been used in connection with the teachings of Jesus Christ to emphasize the importance of changing from earthly cultures to a culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The nature of culture is one that has deep effect on the beliefs and patterns of life as well as a collective worldview. Within the concept of culture is the collective belief system that leads to decisions on behavior and in the case of this work, those events appropriately associated with conflict, justification, morality, legality, and ethics. Before moving forward, let us address and explain what the term culture means. I will quote from Bruce M. Tharp's article entitled Defining Culture and Organizational Culture from Anthropology to the Office, published in April 2009. For greater complexity on the topic, I refer you to the Texas A&M page on culture. It is more detailed, but not necessarily as useful as what Tharp provides. I will begin with this quote. British anthropologist Edward Tyler is widely credited with the first, 1871, modern definition of culture. That complex whole which includes knowledge, belief, arts, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. Undoubtedly, this definition influenced the shift toward current dictionary definitions. Close quote. He refers to a change in definition which occurred from culture's first definition as being connected to agriculture and field cultivation to a meaning associated with high culture and having a cultivated mind to the definition given above and the one I will now quote at some length. Most simply, culture involves three basic human activities, what people think, what people do, and what people make. Further, several common properties arise. Culture is shared, learned, transmitted cross-generationally, symbolic, adaptive, and integrated. One of the primary characteristics of human life over animal life is that we assign symbolic meaning to ideas, behavior, and objects, as well as have language and speech. We say that humans have culture while animals do not. This is largely due to their inability to ascribe arbitrary symbolic meaning to their world. A chimpanzee could not designate his banana to signify honesty, for example. Culture is also adaptive in that it can and does change in response to various influences and conditions. No culture is truly static. Many aspects of American culture are radically different in the wake of the internet, the dot-com bubble, and global terrorism. And finally, culture is integrated in the sense that it permeates society and becomes part of the social machinery. Culture is the ever-present, ethereal medium in which members live and through which they act. In 1973, anthropologist Clifford Gertz published The Interpretation of Cultures, in which he writes, 
Culture is the fabric of meaning in terms of which human beings interpret their experience and guide their action, and that culture is an ordered system of meaning and of symbols in terms of which social interaction takes place. Close quote. We see this present in the Book of Mormon. There are several different cultures. These cultures change over time. They variously ascribe meaning to symbols, and those symbols change in value and in significance. For example, the Sword of Laban and the Liahona were symbols that mattered a great deal in the beginning of the Book of Mormon time frame, but they seemed to have less symbolic power later, even though the artifacts were still present in the eroded story of the Nephites being sons and daughters of a thief and liar, which remained for hundreds of years. I offered that in the Book of Mormon there are seven separate cultures discussed, and it is this competition between these cultures that led to the armed conflict within the narrative. The seven cultures are the Gospel of Jesus Christ, referred to throughout the remainder of this episode and the podcast series simply as the Gospel Culture, Nephite, Lamanite, Mulekite, Gadiant and Robber, Tribal, and Jaredite. At different times, different groups may be closer to the gospel culture than others. This distinction between the gospel and Nephite cultures is critical in Mormon's narrative because it is in his era that the Nephite culture existed in a state farthest from the gospel culture. Jacob and Moroni take time to identify places where the Nephites depart from the gospel culture and when the Lamanites are closer to it, for example, in Jacob chapter 3 verse 5 and also in Helaman chapter 6 verse 1 and verse 34 and also Helaman 7 verses 23 to 24. At the beginning of separation between Nephi and Laman and their respective followers, there are three cultures in the promised land that the reader is introduced to, Nephite, Lamanite, and Mulekite. This period lasts until the time of Mosiah II, who unites the Nephites and Mulekites into the Nephite kingdom. Even with this combined kingdom, several Book of Mormon scholars suggest that a lasting cultural difference remains throughout the B.C. period of the Book of Mormon. For example, in the 1990 book, Warfare in the Book of Mormon, John A. Tvednis, I hope that I have said his name properly, makes reference to possible long-lasting cultural divisions between Nephites and Mulekites that we will refer to in later episodes. This means that there may have remained a distinction between Nephite and Mulekite culture, even though they were somewhat united and referred to by Mormon collectively as all being Nephites. The Mulekite culture is not elaborated. We do know that they were without a written record and had lost the language of the scriptures. There are insinuations of conflict between Nephites and Mulekites along the possible decisions of type and method of ruler. We are only told of one specific Mulekite dissenter in Mormon's record, and that comes in Helaman chapter 1 verse 15, though many other dissensions and internal Nephite conflicts arise. This suggests that to Mormon, the internal cultural differences were not significant, or they were unclear in the source records used to compile his abridgment. 
In the first generation, the Nephite and Gospel cultures are synonymous. We are given some information on what makes a person a Nephite. Nephi begins as the groups separate by saying that the people who accompanied him and formed the foundation of future Nephite cultures were those who believed in the warnings and the revelations of God in 2 Nephi chapter 5 verse 6. This is a general pattern followed through much of the Book of Mormon narrative. Later, at the period of the third generation after Lehi, or the second king of the Nephites, the cultures begin a divergence that remains to some degree until the coming of Jesus Christ. From the third generation after Lehi until Helaman chapter 1, there are four cultures, Gospel, Nephite, Lamanite, and Mulekite, with the Nephites generally striving to associate themselves with the Gospel culture. Regardless of the success or failure of the Nephites to maintain this connection, there remains a gospel culture as a subculture of Nephite culture throughout the Book of Mormon. At various times, there is also a gospel subculture within the greater Lamanite culture. Beginning with the first chapter of the Book of Helaman, the reader is introduced to the fifth culture, the Gadianton robbers, or more generically, secret combinations which really exists earlier in time, but the Book of Mormon reader does not know this until reading the Book of Ether. An entire later episode is devoted to the nature of the Gadianton culture and the meaning of secret combinations among the peoples of the Book of Mormon and how this applied to conflict, so discussion about them here is very brief. The Gadianton robbers are a culture based on the concept of great gain through disrupting the regular flow of decisions, assassinating leaders to place allied or like-minded leaders on the thrones, and theft to obtain wealth as two examples. In short, robbers do two things. They steal and they commit murder. Depending on residual Mulekite culture, five cultures function together through the end of the Nephite state when the reader is introduced to the sixth culture. The sixth culture is short-lived. It is in the period following the collapse of the Nephite state and prior to the appearance of Jesus Christ when the people are living in a tribal culture. This comes in 3 Nephi chapter 7 verses 2 and 3. This period is short, but unlike any other culture. In this period there are two cultures in existence tribal and gospel. One might question this designation as tribal culture might be construed as a form of organizing the people more so than a separate cultural identity. In the simple definition given previously that culture consists of what people think, what people do, and what people make, then the tribal culture affects all three in the sense that the people were isolated from a larger polity and therefore must have been more focused on life-sustaining functions and not on high cultural art and architecture. The emphasis on smaller groups maintaining self-preservation activities changed what people did, and the lack of general emphasis on the gospel seemed to change what people thought. The appearance of Jesus Christ and the conversion of the population following the efforts of Christ's disciples changed the culture yet again. The people conformed to a single gospel culture following the appearance and teaching of Jesus Christ and his disciples. 
This unified culture fragmented over time, and again the dominant Lamanite and Nephite cultures returned, with the Gadianton robber culture becoming integrated as well. It is with these three dominant cultures and the small community of gospel culture that the Nephite narrative ends. The seventh culture is that of the Jaredites. This culture is the longest lasting and may have been the largest and most varied. However, it is also the least detailed in the record. Because of limited information, we are unable to further subdivide Jaredite culture, although I assume that there wasn't a single monolithic Jaredite culture as I offer here. It is important to define Nephite and Lamanite culture as these are the two cultures in conflict. The initial definition of Nephite culture needs refinement as it soon ceases to be valid for the remainder of the record. As the definition is refined, it is important to remember that the initial definition is critical as it forms the foundation upon which future cultural differences are built. Even at the end, an understanding of Christ and acceptance of him was considered a part of being a Nephite. I quote from Moroni chapter 1 verse 2, For behold, their wars are exceedingly fierce among themselves, and because of their hatred they put to death every Nephite that will not deny the Christ. Close quote. Mormon provides a greater distinction between Nephites and Lamanites in Alma chapter 3 verses 10 and 11, and I quote, Therefore, whosoever suffered himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head, and there was a mark set upon him. And it came to pass that whosoever would not believe in the tradition of the Lamanites, but believed those records which were brought out of the land of Jerusalem, and also in the tradition of their fathers, which were correct, who believed in the commandments of God and kept them, were called the Nephites, or the people of Nephi, from that time forth. Close quote. Mormon expresses the definition in opposition to each other. He is a Nephite who is opposed to the Lamanites, and vice versa. This does not provide any details of why, other than the initial belief in the teachings of the prophets. One might oppose one group or the other. Mormon continues with more detail of what Nephites, secular or religious, might have believed in. He gives this first in Alma chapter 43 verse 9, and again in chapter 48 verse 14, from which I quote, and now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. Now the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood if it were necessary. Yea, and they were also taught never to give an offense. Yea, and never to raise the sword, except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. Close quote. The concept of liberty and freedom of thought and action, typically freedom to believe in Christ, is a common theme among the Nephites. This opportunity to believe truth stands in marked contrast to the traditions the Lamanites believed about the Nephites. The king of the Lamanites expresses his issues when confronting Ammon too, as he travels with, his, with the king's son, Lamoni, as I quote from Alma chapter 20, verse 13. 
And now, when Lamoni had rehearsed unto him all these things, behold, to his astonishment, his father was angry with him, and said, Lamoni, thou art going to deliver these Nephites, who are sons of a liar. Behold, he robbed our fathers, and now his children are also come amongst us, that they may, by their cunning and their lyings, deceive us, that they again may rob us of our property. Close quote. The difference that was perpetuated was that of robbery and theft in the wilderness, that Nephi had taken something from his older brother, and as such had denied layman blessings. This opposition in foundation mythology of the two conflicting cultures is critical to the future battles. Even those who leave one culture for the other adopt the foundation myth of their new culture. This conflict in foundation stories is exhibited in multiple instances. I quote from Alma chapter 54, verses 16 to 18. I am Amaron, the king of the Lamanites. I am the brother of Amalickiah, whom ye have murdered. Behold, I will avenge his blood upon you. Yea, and I will come upon you with my armies, for I fear not your threatenings. For behold, your fathers did wrong their brethren, insomuch that they did rob them of their right to the government, when it rightly belonged to them. And now behold, if ye will lay down your arms, and subject yourselves to be governed by those to whom the government doth rightly belong, then will I cause that my people shall lay down their weapons, and shall be at war no more. Close quote. This comment came from a former Nephite who claimed descent from Zoram, the former servant of Laban. In this claim, he further disputes the Nephite foundation story by stating that Zoram was pressed and brought out of Jerusalem by Nephi in Alma chapter 54 verse 23. Mormon explains this phenomenon using religious terms to do so. As stated in a previous episode, Mormon is viewing this history through a spiritual lens, and therefore he describes all occurrences in this eternal and spiritual perspective. I want to give an example from Alma chapter 47, verse 36, and I quote, Now these dissenters, having the same instruction and the same information of the Nephites, yea, having been instructed in the same knowledge of the Lord, nevertheless, it is strange to relate, not long after their dissensions, they became more hardened and impenitent and more wild, wicked, and ferocious than the Lamanites, drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites, giving way to indolence and all manner of lasciviousness, yea, entirely forgetting the Lord their God. Close quote. A similar comment is heard through an epistle from a leader of the Gadianton band to the head of the Nephite government. Here another culture has formed and adopted much of the same foundational arguments for justifying armed conflict to regain usurped rights. I quote from 3 Nephi chapter 3 verse 10, And I write this epistle unto you, Laconius, and I hope that you will deliver up your lands and your possessions without the shedding of blood, that this my people may recover their rights and government who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining them from their rights of government, and except ye do this, I will avenge their wrongs. I am Gideonhi. In the eyes of their opponents, and in the foundation myth of their opponents, the Nephites are usurpers of authority and deprivers of others of their rightful place at the head of government. 
Mormon, of course, presents the Nephite view and his description of the culture of his opponents. The Lamanites is obviously diametrically opposed to his description of his own culture. For example, I quote from Mosiah chapter 9, verse 12, Now they were a lazy and an idolatrous people. Therefore they were desirous to bring us into bondage, that they might glut themselves with the labors of our hands, yea, that they might feast themselves upon the flocks of our fields. Close quote. The following is Mormon's explanation of the division of peoples following the unified culture of Jesus Christ. Here, the two competing cultures are not arguing over a foundation myth, but the disagreements are more ideological. I quote at some length from 4th Nephi chapter 1, verses 34 to 39. Nevertheless, the people did harden their hearts, for they were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches and to do all manner of iniquity, and they did smite upon the people of Jesus. But the people of Jesus did not smite again, and thus they did dwindle in unbelief and wickedness from year to year, even until two hundred and thirty years had passed away. And now it came to pass in this year, yea, in the two hundred and thirty and first year, there was a great division among the people. And it came to pass that in this year there arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were the true believers in Christ, and among them there were those who were called by the Lamanites, Jacobites, and Josephites, and Zoramites. Therefore the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ, among whom were the three disciples of Jesus who should tarry, were called Nephites, and Jacobites, and Josephites, and Zoramites. And it came to pass that they who rejected the gospel were called Lamanites, and Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites, and they did not dwindle in unbelief, but they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ, and they did teach their children that they should not believe, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. And it was because of the wickedness and abomination of their fathers, even as it was in the beginning, and they were taught to hate the children of God, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. Close quote. Of course, the Nephite culture diverges from the gospel culture as time passes. Regardless, Mormon regularly uses the Nephites in a way that seems linked with gospel culture. Topic 7. Language as a Source of Conflict Language is referred to throughout the record as being crucial to the perpetuation of the culture of the gospel. Preserving the language is given as a reason for authorizing the execution of Laban in 1 Nephi chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. Language, like culture, appears to be important to the conflict story recorded. Linguistic confusion has been at the center of numerous conflicts, as it is a root cause for communication failure. In the 2016 movie Arrival, the Jeremy Renner character reads the following from a book written by the Amy Adams character, which I quote, Language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds a people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. Close quote. 
I believe this statement from the fictional depiction of an encounter between humans and aliens provides a profound truth. Language is integral to war and conflict, as it is the source that defines the purposes and reasons for the very conflict in action. There are numerous languages that are stated or inferred from the record, and as a result, these provide numerous opportunities for generating conflict as misunderstandings exist. I will list the nine languages and identify each one's reference in the Book of Mormon, or whether or not and why it is inferred. Language 1, Hebrew, Inferred. We learned in the earlier discussion on the Assyrian war machine and the story of the siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC that Hebrew was the language of the common people of the kingdom of Judah, and thereby it is inferred that Lehi and Ishmael and their families spoke this language. Language 2, Aramaic, inferred. From the same story of the siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC, we learned that Aramaic, or Syrian, as it is re referenced in the King James Bible, was the Near Eastern lingua franca, and it was spoken by educated people of the kingdom of Judah and businessmen in the Near East. I think that maybe Lehi or Ishmael spoke this language because they conducted business in the Near East, as seems to be implied by Lehi being a traitor, but this would also have assisted in the movement southeast that the family took. Language 3. Arabic. Inferred. The families traveled through the Arabian Peninsula and lived there for eight years. We previously discussed that possibly Nephi taught others the gospel message along the way. The family lived in the land they called Bountiful, and while there they built a ship. The travel, the teaching, and the construction probably involved interactions with local tribes that almost certainly spoke Arabic. For this reason, I infer that Arabic was a language of use for people in the Book of Mormon. Language 4. Egyptian. Mosiah chapter 1 verse 4. We are told in Mosiah chapter 1 verse 4 that the brass plates were written in Egyptian, and we are also told that Lehi and Nephi, at a minimum, could read them as did many others. Language 5, Reformed Egyptian, Mormon chapter 9 verse 32. Moroni says in Mormon chapter 9 verse 32 that the golden plates were written in a language he called Reformed Egyptian. From his comments, we get a sense that this language required fewer characters and was less precise than was Hebrew. But otherwise, we really don't know what about the language was reformed. Language 6. Mulekite. Omni chapter 1, verse 17. We are told that the people of Zarahemla spoke something that wasn't Nephite when Mosiah 1 arrived in the area. This was described as a corrupt language, which I suppose to be a mixture of native Aramaic, Hebrew, and American languages. What is important in the story of this language is that this is what happens when a people do not have an anchoring text. Languages always change, but they change much faster without an anchor. In this case, the language changed to a point that it was incomprehensible to a people 
who in all probability spoke a common language about 400 years earlier. Language 7, Nephite language. Omni chapter 1, verse 18. This is actually called Mosiah's language and could refer to a royal language or a language of the people. Because of language change, the people of Mosiah 1 almost certainly did not speak either Hebrew or Aramaic, whichever language was Nephi's basic language. Later, the Lamanites were taught the language of the Nephites, as recorded in Mosiah chapter 24, verse 4. Language 8, Lamanite. Mosiah chapter 24, verse 4. The fact that the Lamanites needed to be taught the Nephite language implies that the Lamanites spoke something different. Whatever it was that they spoke was the Lamanite language. The reference in Mosiah chapter 24 verse 4 should not be taken to imply that all Lamanites learned Nephite and spoke it. This may have been true for the elites, but highly unlikely for the poor and uneducated. Language 9, Jaredite. Mosiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. We are told that Limhi sent out a group to find the city of Zarahemla. This group became lost and wandered to the final battle location for the Jaredites. There they found the record left by Ether and that provided the source material that Moroni abridged and translated into the book of Ether. Because Limhi and his people could not read the language in which the record was written, this was a different language that I am referring to as the Jaredite language. Throughout most of the Book of Mormon, at least four languages are important. Nephite, Lamanite, Egyptian, and Reformed Egyptian. These are the languages used in the daily and spiritual discourse. Many times the writers of the Book of Mormon refer to being taught in the language of their fathers. It was probably to Egyptian or Reformed Egyptian that they most likely refer in Enos chapter 1 verse 1, Mosiah chapter 1 verse 2, and Mosiah chapter 9 verse 1, as these languages empowered them to read the scriptural record from the brass plates and the recordings later written on the gold plates. We do not know what language the prophets or chief judges or kings used to record their thoughts. We know that the final record provided by Mormon and Moroni was in Reformed Egyptian. Because the small plates of Nephi seemed to have been written in the same language, then one might reasonably infer that the gold plates were always written in Reformed Egyptian. This seems to have been a written language and not a language of daily conversation, and therefore the reason for emphasis on the part of those who expressed the importance of being taught in the language of their fathers, or the language of the sacred records. It is unclear who spoke each of these languages, or at what level these languages were spoken. Every language is made up of dialects, and one can get a sense from the stories we will later discuss that a variety of dialects were present in Lamanite and probably Nephite language as well. It is probable that each region had a variant of the language with leaders and educated people speaking what would be commonly called standard Nephite or standard Lamanite. 
It is also possible that Lamanite leaders were educated in Nephite as well, as the reader is not told that Ammon too spoke Lamanite. It is plausible that Ammon too taught King Lamoni and his wife in Nephite. This may explain why Lamoni's servants did not understand what happened when the king, queen, and Ammon were overcome by the spirit, even though Ammon had explained it in Alma chapter 19 verse 15 as they themselves might not have understood the conversation being carried on in Nephite, or might not have understood it in detail. Regardless of specific speculation, it is clear that numerous languages were used, and training in language was necessary to access the teachings of the scriptures and historical records. A final note regarding language, as it points to the next part of this podcast series, There is no military doctrine and no elaborate military strategies absent writing. It is possible to pass from one generation to the next through stories told around the campfire the elements and responsibilities of a hunt. It is not possible to communicate the complexities of large battles without some form of written language that records the conduct and lessons from earlier battles. In this next part, we will meet the first strategist in the Book of Mormon record, about whom we are told that he was studied in all the arts of war. These details help inform readers of the Book of Mormon of the richness of the record. There is more to see, hear, and understand than the written word alone. There are inferences and implications that enrich the story and make it real. This is how it is done in the real world, and not just in a storybook world. The next episode begins the third part of our podcast series. Part 3 deals with the people of Zenith, the introduction in the Book of Mormon of strategy, two different battle analyses, and the discussion on the Jaredites. The first episode in Part 3 provides an overview of the people that I label the Zenithites. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.